Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And there were these moments along the way where I would look around and just have my mind blown by how different my life suddenly was. Like it's, it's, it's slow. It's almost imperceptible, but change happens in such a way where all of a sudden my relationships were better. I was communicating more clearly. I was setting better boundaries. I was attracting people into my life who treated me with respect. I was finding more purpose and meaning in my work and making more thoughtful decisions. I just like everything about my life was just improving. And it was because of work I didn't even realize I needed to do. There's just so much we don't know we don't know. That's what I really want to communicate to people is you might not even think there's much to gain, but I promise you there is because we're really good at hiding things from ourselves. And so if you are willing to look into those dark corners and dig stuff up and do the work and lean into discomfort, I promise you'll be rewarded with things you didn't even realize you needed. Emily, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. Um, Obviously, this is our first time meeting, but I was excited to bring you on just through some of the speakings that you've done on TED. Uh, You've done various talks on mental health, of course, uh, through your company, COA. And I was interested in this idea of emotional fitness. It's a nomenclature that I haven't really heard in the past too often. I think most people just look at it as mental health. And um, yeah, would love to go into kind of what is the distinguished difference of something like emotional fitness versus, you know, uh, mental health that most people refer to. Sure. So my using the term emotional fitness came from this realization that the way mental health is thought about in our society is super reactive. Most people are made to feel like they have to wait till things are really falling apart or till they're really struggling to do anything about their mental health. And so mental health as a term has really become equated with mental health issues. And I wanted to try to reframe the narrative of mental health to being something a little more proactive to help people think about tending to their mental health more like going to the gym and less like going to the doctor. Because a lot of issues that we face with our mental health are a lot easier to prevent than they are to fix. And just like there was a whole physical revolution where people realized, oh, we should probably exercise and eat well and sleep enough now so that we don't get sick later, I'm really trying to spearhead this initiative that that's worth doing with our mental health too. So a number of years ago, I started using the term emotional fitness instead because it feels less stigmatized and a little more accessible. And it implies, look, you can't just do one weekend workshop or, you know, go to therapy one time and think you're going to be fixed, just like you can't go to the gym once and think that you're going to be healthy the rest of your life. So I'd say about eight years ago, I decided I wanted to do some research on what emotional fitness actually means, because people were interested in it as a concept, but they're like, well, what does, what's an emotional push-up look like? <laughs> what would it look like to actually work on a, my emotional health? 
So I did something called interpretive phenomenological analysis. It's a type of qualitative research. And I interviewed 100 psychologists and entrepreneurs about what they think emotional fitness looks like. How would they know if someone was working on their emotional health in an ongoing and proactive way? And when I analyzed these interviews and coded them for themes, I found these eight traits of an emotionally fit leader. The research was normed on founders and leaders and managers and VCs. And these traits were self-awareness, empathy, the ability to play, curiosity, resilience, mindfulness, and communication. And so I've devoted the last decade of my life essentially to understanding how do we help create emotional fitness workouts for people such that they can be building their resilience muscles and be more set up to face the inevitable difficulties that life will throw at all of us. Yeah, I mean, you. I imagine this is stuff that you had a lot of training from the doctor degree that you got into clinical psychology, right? Uh, down in Berkeley. Um, but it is a huge issue. I mean, people look at it, I think even just now when it comes to physical health, this is still something that people are still having a hard time realizing. I, th- I saw a data on the CDC that a lot of the chronic diseases that are avoidable through preventative care services account for about 75% of the nation's healthcare, which accounts to about like 200, 250 billion or something around those numbers. I mean, it's an insane number that can be prevented, but most people think so short term, right? It's just the way our human brains are wired because most people didn't live that long. So it was trying to really go for the short-term rewards instead of thinking of the long-term. And I imagine this is something that you're trying to, as you mentioned, spearhead into mental health as well, but it's probably even a bigger challenge because it's not something that you can physically see. Physical health, you know, if you're chubby, if you've got a belly, if you're feeling lazy or if you're not feeling great and energized, but mental health, most people ignore. So is this something that you get common uh, working in this industry that people just kind of ignore and deny the fact that they may have something to work on in their mental health? I think that was true for a really long time. And don't get me wrong, it's still true. But a lot of the friction and stigma is starting to shift as it's becoming pretty tough to deny that we all have mental health things that we could be working on. Like the pervasiveness of stress and anxiety and depression and burnout and all of these, maybe not extreme mental health disorders, but just general struggles in everyday life are becoming pretty pretty intense. I I don't know a lot of people who aren't struggling with this kind of thing. And so I think people are waking up to the idea that there's probably some work to do there. One of the things I say, though, a lot is, in my experience, people don't go to therapy because they don't know what to do. People go to therapy because they do know what to do and need help understanding why they're not doing it. So if you were to tell someone struggling with their physical health, hey, go to the gym, eat well, they probably already know that. The question is, why aren't they eating well? Why aren't they going to the gym? And in the world of emotional fitness, a lot of the real work is understanding why aren't we doing what we have to do to move toward a more healthy version of ourselves. And there's all kinds of complicated reasons why we get in our own way. So the work that I do is a lot about confronting those reasons versus just saying, oh, here's what you should do to be healthier. People know what they should do to be healthier. It's about understanding what our own roadblocks are along the way. Right. So what what are some of those signals that mean that people need some sort of therapy before they realize that they need it? Is there symptoms to kind of look at in their everyday lives? 
Well, so there's symptoms, like certainly if you're really stressed, if you're anxious, if you're feeling low more of the time than not, if you're seeing struggles in your relationships, if you're having issues at work, I mean, all these things are clues. But I would go one step further and say that there isn't really anyone who wouldn't benefit from doing this kind of work. Because even if your life is already going pretty well, which during a time like this, I'd be surprised to hear a lot of people are saying they're living their best life. But even if things are going mostly well, you still have a lot to gain from doing this work. You can still level up in a big way. Just like someone who's, you know, naturally thin and pretty healthy, still, if they work out and eat well and exercise, they're going to feel more energized. They're going to live longer. They're going to get sick less often. They're going to be able to carry groceries from the car to the house more easily. There are all kinds of hidden benefits in the mental health and mental fitness world that you might not even realize are accessible to you if you're willing to do this work in an ongoing way. Mm. So what are some of those things that are accessible to most people that they may not be aware of? Yeah, like I can use myself as, as an example. When I was starting grad school to become a psychologist, I decided to start therapy. And at the time, I didn't really feel like I needed therapy. My life was good. Everything was fine. I felt like I was a really self-aware person. And I mostly just started it because I thought I should probably know what this feels like if I'm going to learn how to do it. And I was in therapy for years. I went multiple times a week for years. And there were these moments along the way where I would look around and just have my mind blown by how different my life suddenly was. Like it's, it's, it's slow. It's almost imperceptible. But change happens in such a way where all of a sudden my relationships were better. I was communicating more clearly. I was setting better boundaries. I was attracting people into my life who treated me with respect. I was finding more purpose and meaning in my work and making more thoughtful decisions. I just like everything about my life was just improving. And it was because of work I didn't even realize I needed to do. There's just so much we don't know we don't know. That's yeah. what I really want to communicate to people is you might not even think there's much to gain, but I promise you there is because we're really good at hiding things from ourselves. And so if you are willing to look into those dark corners and dig stuff up and do the work and lean into discomfort, I promise you'll be rewarded with things you didn't even realize you needed. Yeah, it's a great point. Like what we don't know that we don't know. There is this chart and I'm sure you've seen it. It's like the pie chart where you've got like a sliver of things of what we do know. And then you've yeah. got something a little bit bigger, which is like a quarter, maybe even less of the things that we know we don't know. And mm -hmm. then there is the we don't know, we don't know, which is probably like 80% of the things. So we have all these hidden biases, hidden blind spots that particularly as entrepreneurs, that people that are in higher level positions that are managing people, you're, you're influencing a lot of the negativity or some of the bad decisions that you might be. So it's, there, there's way more impact potentially negative that you could have by not taking care of your mental health. But there is this stigma. And I come from like a South Korean background where we're taught to kind of like hide our emotions and to toughen up and to like the idea of therapy is just, is, is just unheard of. Right. It, it's, I think if, if someone wants to go to therapy in back in Korea, maybe it's different now, but 20 years ago, let's say it just wouldn't be as accepted I guess it would almost be like a like a secret that you would have to keep. So uh, is this like a is there certainly like a cultural difference in terms of how therapy or emotional fitness is looked at? And, and what are some of the things that we can do to abolish that? I think there's definitely huge cultural differences. I mean, talking to people who come from all sorts of different cultures, not only in terms of what country they're from, but also what the culture of their family was like, how accepted things were just in their family of origin and where they come from. And, you know, 
I, I don't know what I would say about abolishing it because, of course, every culture has to have its values. But I would say that I think people are starting to understand that this process of pretending our feelings don't exist and shoving them away maybe doesn't work as well as we wish that it did. That the things that we don't feel through, we end up carrying with us all the time. And I think the fear is often if we lean into our feelings at all, will they take over? Will that be all that we can do is just be bundles of emotion all the time? And I think the idea with the emotional fitness is if you don't wait until your feelings are fighting their way out of your body because you've been shoving them down for so long, then they're actually a lot more manageable and you can just feel them a little bit as they come every day. And, you know, you actually do feel through things. People don't realize that like feelings actually can be processed such that if you allow yourself to feel them, they won't have as much control over you in an ongoing way. And so we're really just trying to normalize and destigmatize the idea that we all have emotions. There's not a single human being on this earth who does not feel the full range of human emotions in one way or another. And if we can allow it and make space for it, then we end up having more agency over those emotions rather than them, rather than them sort of controlling us from the shadows. What are some of the um, hidden blind spots that you see most people have and uncover? I mean, for me, and I think you talk about this in your talk, which really resonated with me, which is this idea of uh, having getting compliments is, is actually really difficult for me. I don't know if you're the same way, but when someone compliments me on, let's say, a recent podcast episode or something that I've done, for some reason, and I still can't uncover it, I just get really uncomfortable. And I either have to downplay what I've done or uh, give a compliment right back. Uh, it's just like a very uncomfortable thing. And, I, and I've seen a few other people have that. Um, so is that like a common thing that most people have? It is really common. It is really common. People get very uncomfortable with compliments, even though on some level we all want to know that we're good and that we're appreciated and that what we're doing is valuable. When someone tells it to us, I think it's uncomfortable for different reasons, depending on who you are. For some people, we've been taught that we're not supposed to, you know, we're supposed to be humble and we're not supposed to, uh, you know, bask too much in the glory of compliments. For some of us, the compliment being given to us doesn't match how we feel about ourselves on the inside. And that's really unsettling. So if someone tells you how amazing you are and you don't feel amazing, then that's really uncomfortable and you don't really know what to do with it and you'll often kind of push it away. There's all kinds of reasons there. But what I try to remind people is a compliment is a gift. And when someone gives us a compliment and we reject it, and by reject it, I mean either saying why their compliment's wrong, which we do all the time, right? Someone will be like, wow, that podcast is so good. And you might be like, oh, I don't know. I messed up three times or I threw it together at the last minute. Or another way we reject a compliment is by throwing a compliment right back before we've even felt the compliment. So someone will be like, wow, great podcast. And you'll be like, oh, well, that lecture you did last week was really great. And mm -hmm. you haven't even taken a second to feel what they said, right? So rather than rejecting compliments, how can we pause and let ourselves have them, like the gifts that they are, let them land on us and actually fold them into our self-concept such that maybe the next compliment we hear won't feel as uncomfortable because we'll have allowed ourselves to see ourselves in this really lovely way that other people are able to see us. So, you know, I, I want to help people have permission to take these compliments in. What, what's the um, reasoning, psychological reasoning behind why people can't pay compliments very well? I mean, if I'm looking at it personally, 
I think it's hard for me because the fear of feeling like I'm being cocky or bragging is something that I don't want. Like it's something that I really just don't like. And I think that's part of the reason why I try to deflect it. I don't know if it's the same for other people, but is there like a common reasoning of why it's so hard for people to take that compliment? Yeah, I feel like you're beautifully illustrating this idea that I just mentioned about how we're taught that we're not supposed to enjoy wonderful things about ourselves. And when I say this to people, they're often like, oh, but look at the millennials who just, you know, are on social media all the time and they think they're so great. And my response to that is when you talk to people, often they're very insecure behind all of that seeming narcissism. You know, that actually I think part of the reason the next generation is grabbing for validation so much is because we've always been taught we can't just have it. We're not allowed to just feel really good about ourselves and to say beautiful things about the people we love and have them take them in. And so we're constantly seeking likes and, you know, all of these retweets and things that make us feel better when really it it might be different if it was okay to say, wow, thank you for that beautiful compliment. That means a lot to me. And actually, would you tell me more? It sounds like my podcast really resonated with you. What about it felt good? What were your favorite parts? Like imagine if that were really okay. Ask more. Yeah, because if someone gave you negative feedback, if someone said, hey, that podcast episode wasn't great, you'd probably say, oh, can you tell me more about that? What wasn't good or what should I do differently? You'd probably have no problem asking for more information in that instance. So why is it that if someone gives you good feedback, we can't say, help me understand that more. I want to know what felt good so I can keep doing that and so that I can feel good about it too. Yeah, again, it's this fear of feeling like I'm I'm bragging. I I don't know what it is. Because you know those people that, uh, what's that term? There's a term for it, right? When you think you're better than you are, but you're actually not. Oh, are you talking about Dunning-Kruger? Uh, yeah, the Dunning-Kruger effect. Yeah. Um, but it's not I really mean, thinking you're better than you are. It's thinking you know more than you do, right? It's thinking you're more is, okay. competent in something because there's so much you don't know you don't know. Yeah. But I mean, you're speaking a really common fear. I think a lot of people and especially people you know, who've been taught that it's not okay to be proud and to be outward with our pride, you know, we, we fight that stuff away, but then there's negative consequences to that. It means that we don't allow ourselves to know those things deep down. And I actually think we really need that in order to justify continuing the insane hustle. Like you clearly put a lot of work into what you do and what's the point if it's not resonating with anyone, right? So letting yourself know that it's resonating with people that's actually really important and, and I think healthy. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, yeah, the Dunning-Kruger effect is, is quite interesting. I, I, I'm wondering if that's like, I wonder, I always wonder like how something like that comes about. My, my thesis is that it's from people or parents that have given children ninth place trophies and made <laughs> them feel good about things that just are not supposed to feel good. And they end up just kind of, I guess, in a little bubble in some ways. And I don't know if that's like a healthy way to parent either, but do you have, do you ever research or anything like that about how stuff like that comes about? I mean, we all have a little Dunning-Kruger, right? Because if Dunning-Kruger is, you don't know what you don't know. And we just talked about how much we don't know. We don't know. We all have it a little bit and we want to feel like we have mastery in the world. And so I think we do try to convince ourselves we know what we're doing, even when there's so much still to learn. In terms of the ninth place trophy thing, I totally get where you're coming from here. 
But I want to offer a counter thought, which is I have a friend, his name's Adam Smiley Poswalski. Everyone calls him Smiley. And he did a TED talk and has written a book and has done all this work around the millennial generation and this idea that people see the millennial generation as this trophy seeking, you know, wants credit for nothing generation. And that actually maybe, maybe we're the meaning seeking generation. And that what's really happening is we want to feel like all this work we're doing, which is now no longer nine to five, it's our whole lives, a lot of us, we want to know that it's for something, that it's worth something, and that it's making some kind of difference in the world. We want to be recognized because we're now devoting our whole selves to the change we're trying to make in the world. And so again, if it's not doing anything, what's the point kind of thing, you know? So I don't know, to me, Dunning-Kruger is more about living in a society where people aren't encouraged to question things and to be skeptical and to learn and to grow and for it to be okay to make mistakes and for it to be okay to ask tough questions that might, you know, be complicated to answer. And I think if it were more acceptable for us to not know, if it were okay to be wrong and not an expert and not perfect, then we'd have less Dunning-Kruger because we wouldn't need to convince ourselves we know everything all the time when we don't. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like it comes down to the idea of self-awareness and having those mm. uncomfortable conversations. I mean, I think I've heard a quote that the quality of your life is correlated to the number of uncomfortable conversations you're willing to have. I know you've got this game called If You Really Knew Me. And can you give a little bit of a briefer of how that works and how that helps with something like this? Yeah. So in terms of discomfort, I would say that I boil all emotional fitness, all emotional health and mental health growth down to one concept, which is becoming more comfortable being uncomfortable. Because so much of what we do in life is in service of moving away from our discomfort, right? How can we be uncomfortable for the least amount of time? But the problem is the things we do to be less uncomfortable are often more problematic and cause more discomfort than the original discomfort we were trying to avoid. An extreme version of this is like substance abuse. Like out of desire not to feel some tough things, people will resort to trying to escape and then find themselves in a situation where they're actually much worse off and dealing with much bigger problems than the thing that they were trying not to feel. And so our idea with the work that we're doing is about how can you learn to tolerate discomfort just a little bit better so that you can make the best choice in any moment instead of the choice that moves you away from discomfort. So like yoga, I think is a really good example of this. In yoga, you're put in physically uncomfortable positions, and then you pay attention to how you feel in those moments so that you can build strength and get better at being uncomfortable. And then through that, you get stronger, you get more flexible, you're more able to handle things on and off the yoga mat. So the if you really knew me game is this idea that we hesitate to share vulnerable parts of ourselves with each other because it's uncomfortable. So in If You Really Knew Me, we have people say, if you really knew me, you would know that, and you share something a little uncomfortable about yourself to another person, something a little vulnerable. And what you get to see is that normally that person is really grateful to hear this thing about you, and that sometimes they actually really relate to it, and you start to feel less alone in your vulnerability. So that's one exercise we do. Another exercise we do for discomfort, which I just love facilitating, is we make people do an eye gaze, like literally sit and stare into each other's eyes. And it's so uncomfortable, right? Like strangers, strangers that they've just met and they have to sit and stare into each other's eyes for 20 seconds. And it's horribly uncomfortable, but they'll do it. 
and they'll talk and they'll laugh and they'll do all the things that they do to not feel the discomfort. And then we tell them, listen, you clearly were just a little uncomfortable and you escaped that discomfort by laughing and talking and looking away. But now you have more information. You know that you can do it. You're not in it alone. You know it's not going to last forever. So try it again. But this time when you feel uncomfortable, instead of looking away or laughing, take a deep breath. Remind yourself you can do it. Remind yourself it won't last forever. And then we have them do the eye gaze again. And it is just mind-blowing how different the second time goes. People just do the eye gaze. They just stay present with their partner because they remind themselves that they can tolerate discomfort. And it's this beautiful metaphor for the idea that out in the world, you're going to feel uncomfortable all the time. And if you can take a deep breath and tolerate it, all of a sudden you have access to a different kind of intimacy and vulnerability and agency and all of these beautiful things versus just turning away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on, I was going to suggest that we can play the eye gaze here on Skype, but it's probably a bit <laughs> easier to do this on Skype just because it's not in person. Right. But right. I'm down to try the, if you really knew me game with you, if you want to okay, do something do really it. quick. All right. I love it. You want to go, you first? go back and forth and do three each. Oof, three. I mean, yeah. I don't know if I'm willing to be this. Um, you know, what's funny is, uh, it's a lot easier to be vulnerable with strangers. I don't know if you have, uh, there should be like an effect, like the hostel effect where you go to a random country, you land at a hostel and you feel like you instantly know someone like way better than someone you may have known for like a year in just three days. I love um, that. It's almost like safer because you know you're going to leave. So you don't yeah. have to worry as much about how you're perceived, that kind of thing. There is something about that. I mean, I hope you and I stay in touch, but I'm just, it's, it is a bit easier with strangers, I feel in general, just because I don't know, there's, there's, there's not a, it's not as much pressure, I guess, but yeah. Do you want to, uh, you're going to be so good at this though. I feel like you've already got like five memorized. Uh, <laughs> can you go first so that I can just think of one? <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. If you really knew me, you would know that. When we were young, my sister and I didn't get along at all and really, I think, blamed each other for a lot of the tough things we felt in our childhood. But now she's my best friend in the world and we've really come a long way through, you know, dealing with our own shit and being Wait, able hold to on, have though. a great You, you use this in your talk, though, because I know so I know you're really comfortable with this. I feel okay, like you there's want me one to that do something I'm uncomfortable. Talking yeah, about? So, something that you maybe you haven't shared. Okay, let's Just see. Let's we're see where I can frequency. dig into. That's fair. That's fair. Okay, yeah, that is my go-to example because I think it models vulnerability, but you're right. Let me see if sure. I can be uncomfortable by thinking okay. of something I haven't shared. Okay, let's see. Um, okay, if you really knew me, you would know that I'm compulsively on time and it makes me really uncomfortable when people are late because growing up when people were late, I worried that it was because they'd forgotten about me. Wow. Very deep. Okay. Is it my turn? It's your turn. <laughs> okay. Um, if you really, is it, if you actually knew me, if you knew me. If you really knew me. If you really knew me, I am, my, one of my fears is that I won't be able to have a very long-term relationship because I've traveled so much. And I think in the last five to 10 years, I've had this very avoidant attachment style, as they call it, that I'm trying to shift into more of the secure attachment. Mm 
and one of my fears is that I may not find someone that I can, or I may lose someone that's a really good fit for me just because of this, um, I don't know, character default, I guess. Defect, sorry. What a beautiful deep share. Thank you for yeah, that. Yeah, let's just do one. I, I don't want to do Okay. <laughs> that's This fair. is our first session. Um, but yeah, that's that's something that is probably one. Okay. And like, I guess I feel like the other power of this game is that sometimes saying something out loud changes the chemistry of it. Like I often think our more vulnerable and complicated stuff, the way it lives inside our head and inside our body is, is sometimes worse and messier and more complicated than it actually feels once we've said it and seen that other people are like, oh yeah, I feel that way sometimes too, or I can relate to that. And you know, all of a sudden, maybe it doesn't seem as intense. Just like when you have a hundred things to do and you think you're never going to do them and then you make a to-do list and you're like, oh, okay, actually, I could probably get this stuff done. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Yeah, and, and I feel like, um, yeah, th- there's like dreams are a big one that I've been trying to tap into. Like lucid dreaming is something that I've been really trying to get into more just to try to like uncover some of the deeper thoughts that may not, come about in my in my regular days uh I'm not, I'm not sure like how much you have researched like the topic of dreaming and their meaning and analysis of that uh but that's something i've been really big into in terms of like analyzing what a lot of these means you know um oh yeah like- i love the dream stuff i believe deeply that our dreams are sort of disguised versions of the things that we're having trouble being in touch with when we're awake. Like I think there's, if you can sort of decode the metaphor of your dreams, you will gain access to a whole bunch of really interesting information that might've been harder to access if you were just thinking in your waking life. Like, absolutely. I've seen it. I've seen it as a therapist. I've seen it as a patient. I really recommend people write down their dreams. And if they're in therapy, talk about your dreams in therapy. You'll find out all kinds of cool stuff about yourself. Well, how do you go about analyzing them? I know there's like dream dictionaries and really specific things that point to what certain objects, like if you saw, uh, well, it also, it also, we can go into like Carl, Carl Jung versus, you know, the Freudian approach, but, um, yeah, I mean, how do you go about analyzing something? Is it, do you believe in that dreams are things that we repress in our everyday lives? that come about in our unconsciousness because it's just not something that we have time to think about. We're distracted or we fear thinking about certain things and it's dreams are like creating solutions for problems that we have in our everyday lives. Or do you feel that it's something that might be uh, maybe like telling us something different, uh, I guess. Yeah. I think you described it really well. Yeah, I think dreams are our way of working through stuff. And it can feel a little safer to work through it because it's kind of disguised with all of these, you know, characters and things are never quite what they seem, that kind of thing. But when analyzing dreams, like the dream dictionary thing, I think it's fun. But to me, it, it feels too one size fits all. Like dreaming of an airplane to one person it's going to mean something really different to another person if that other person was in a plane crash when they were young and this person, their dad's a pilot. Like that's going to mean two really different things, right? So to me, to work on your dreams, what's most helpful is 
Um, when someone tells me about a dream, I kind of write down all of the things that stand out, the characters, the colors, what number of things there were, where they were. And then I ask them, like, what, what, what was the emotional tag to the different things? And then I ask them, what does this thing mean to you? So if they dreamt about airplanes, I would say, well, what do airplanes mean to you? Like, what's your relationship with airplanes? And they can kind of free associate to that thing. And we do that for each of the symbols in the dream. And that what will often emerge is this interesting pattern that relates to other things they've been talking about in the past or things that they've been grappling with, or even just as they say it out loud, they'll be like, oh, wow, now that I say this out loud, it does really make me think of this other thing. You know, so like I can give sort of a disguised example to protect privacy, but I had a patient years ago who dreamt that he was riding a motorcycle into his childhood home and he, you know, like kind of disrupted, like broke the windows and stuff, driving the motorcycle into the home. And if you were to look in a dream dictionary, a lot of those say that a motorcycle represents escape. So I think if he were to look this up himself, he would think, oh, maybe I need a vacation or maybe I'm trying to get away from something. But when I talk to him about it, it turns out to him, motorcycles to him were like this really obnoxious thing that only attention seeking people do because they're really loud and bad for the environment and stuff. He's like only annoying people have motorcycles. And I said, oh, and I'm like, where have motorcycles shown up in your life? And he said, well, my brother has a motorcycle now that I think about it. And when we thought more together, we realized that actually he was in this moment in his life where he was feeling like he needed a little bit more attention. And this dream of having a motorcycle was sort of like, when is it my turn to get a little bit of attention? And when will I be the person who's kind of in the spotlight? And it was this interesting revelation to him of like, okay, maybe it's time for me to you know, go back to being a public speaker or the things I used to do to get myself a little bit of attention. So, you know, that's one example, but I do think that there's a lot to be gained from letting yourself look at that stuff a little more closely. Here's another one. So I was seeing a girl like two months ago and this goes back to the idea of like the whole imposter syndrome. I'm not generally like a braggy person. I don't really talk about, particularly about money. Like that's like a forbidden taboo topic that rarely do I talk about, especially with someone that I'm just seeing. And she had a dream where I was bragging about all the money that I was making. And I was like right in front of her face talking about that. And she was honest enough to bring it up to me. And I was like very grateful for it. But it still hasn't gone out of my mind in terms of like, I don't ever talk about that stuff. So I wasn't sure if that was saying something about me or if that was around her perception of guys that maybe she has dated that are like me or her perception of money. I mean, how do you analyze something like that? Because I don't think a dream dictionary is going to be fitting into and analyzing something like this. Well, we can't analyze it without her because we don't know what those things mean to her. You might represent something else entirely. It might not be about right. you at all. Or the, <clears throat> the money might represent something else entirely. Or the bragging might represent something else entirely. And she would have to decide what do these things look like and what was it that my, you know, my unconscious was trying to help me understand through this? So that's the other thing. When people analyze dreams on behalf of other people, that's frustrating to me because we each have our own meaning that, that we should get to privilege when we're thinking about these things. You're right. That's my bad. <laughs> no, I wasn't coming down <laughs> on you. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it is this idea of like the, the Freudian versus, versus young, right? I'm not sure. I think young was against this idea of the dream dictionary because 
he thought dreams could mean multiple different things that it wasn't just like Freud, Freud believed that it was a, a lot around repress it, repress sexual desires that we had that came about in our unconscious that maybe through our morality or through reality just did not come about through our conscious everyday lives. And that symbols like a stick could be, uh, you know, a penis or could be different objects that could mean mostly sexual desire things. And it seems like Jung was more uh, open in terms of the interpretation of things. So when you are analyzing someone's dreams, let's say there's different schools of philosophy and different schools of thought when it comes to psychology. And it seems like different psychologists would give different reasons depending on what type of education they had, whether they studied or believed more in the Freudian versus Jung. So how how do you go about analyzing something like that? Is it a mixture or combination or do you stick to one? Well, so one thing that distinguishes Jung from Freud is Jung also believed that your dreams were partially a result. Jung was more spiritual and partially believed that your dreams were coming in from like past lives and like information that was beyond just what was true in this life, in this moment. But one thing I want to specify is very few therapists are like purely Freudian therapists anymore or purely Jungian therapists anymore. They were pioneers. You know, it'd be like someone who's a physicist only thinking about Plato. You know, like Freud invented psychoanalysis, but we've come a long way. We've built on his theory. We've shifted it. We've modernized it. We've made it more applicable to women in addition to men. Like there's a lot that has changed. And I think sometimes the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater that if you didn't agree with everything Freud said, then you discount modern psychotherapy but that's you know that was a foundation that we've built on since then so in terms of dreams i don't know a lot of people who are like well freud said that this would mean a penis so it's definitely a penis you know like that's just not really how we work anymore i think now there's a lot more understanding that every individual human is going to have something very unique that we have to collaborate with that person to understand. And that's why I have a lot of skepticism about a lot of the mental health solutions that are out there these days that feel very quick fix and very one size fits all. And I think they really dishonor the complexity of who we are and the fact that, you know, it took me 34 years to become the person that I am. It's not going to be fixed by reading one article or by taking one pill or by doing one workshop. I have to be willing to do the work and to understand it and to have compassion for why things are the way they are for me before I can expect myself to shift. And so the work we do at my company, COA, is so much about a lifestyle change. It's about emotional fitness as a practice that will slowly but surely bring you closer to the version of yourself that you want to be instead of trying to find this like magic solution that I don't believe exists. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's also such a huge bias because I mean, beyond the fact that a lot of the theories that are proposed are over like a century old, but they're all done by men. So it's a one man trying to analyze and really generalize what the entire population and different gender uh, may also be thinking, but I imagine a female would have very different uh, ways of analyzing one's dreams and the thoughts that they have than than a man, just because we've had very different experiences. It's true, although there are some badass female psychologists in history who've made I'm, a really big difference. I'm sure, yeah, on the for field sure. for sure. Melanie Klein and Anna Freud, and like I could name tons. But you're right that I mean, 
what isn't a little bit male-centric in the history <laughs> of U.S., right? And and that's changing for sure. But the the part I'm hoping to play is to reduce stigma and reduce friction and to help people understand nothing has to be wrong with you to benefit from this kind of work. And in fact, when you do this work, when things are mostly fine, you're going to be able to do a deeper kind of work. Just like if you wait till you're really sick and then try to go to the gym, you're not going to be able to get stronger. You have to heal. You have to get better. Similarly, if you wait until you're really in a tough place mentally, then you're going to be in problem fixing mode and survival mode. You're not going to be in strengthening mode. So like start now. You know, start doing your emotional burpees and your emotional push-ups now because you're going to be less likely to struggle in a lot of ways and you're going to be more able to handle the inevitable struggle if you are working on that. Yeah, yeah. And one thing to note uh, that we I love to dig into is just like this connection of the of the body with the mind by taking care of our stress levels and the way we think and kind of the thoughts that we have. It can relate to a lot of the body responses that we have in our everyday lives. I mean, a crazy hyperbolic example is uh, we had a guest called Vision. Uh, he's the CEO of Mind Valley, and he was talking about psychodermatology, which is a hypnotist that brings is brought in and is, uh, is hypnotizing someone. And it, the hypnotist tells them to imagine and visualize the creative visualization that they're at a beach and that they're tanning and that the sun is scorching hot and they're getting bright, they're getting tanner and tanner. And supposedly it has actually made some people tanner. I'm a bit skeptical in terms of how far you can take this kind of things. But what what have you learned in terms of how valid for something like this is? I believe it. Like think of the placebo effect. Think of how powerful the placebo effect actually is. Our body does what it thinks it's supposed to do. So an example I like to give to help people believe this a little bit is like, I want you to try this for a second. So close your eyes. And I want you to imagine that you're cutting a lemon in half and then you're cutting the lemon in half again. So now you have this really solid wedge of lemon. I want you to pick up in your mind that wedge of lemon and I want you to just bite right into it. It fills your mouth with all kinds of really sour lemon juice. Okay, open your eyes. Did you salivate at all? I actually got like all over my face. It was like, yeah, it was like... <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So you don't actually need to salivate. You don't actually need to create more saliva when there isn't a real lemon in your mouth. But your body does it because you think for a second. You're imagining that you need it. And that happens in our life all the time. Our body does, for efficiency's sake, what it thinks it needs to do, even if it doesn't actually need to do it. They've shown like rubbing fake hair regrowth gel on someone. They'll actually regrow hair. There's Placebo effect is real. And so mind and body are so connected because what we don't let ourselves think goes into our body. Like a lot of the somatic issues people struggle with are very, very strongly psychological. I know for me, when I'm anxious, I get nauseous. And often when I'm nauseous, that's how I know I'm anxious. And it's not until I feel the nausea that I'm like, oh, you know what? I think I'm really nervous about this presentation tomorrow or something like that. And it was, I didn't want to face the anxiety. And so my body took it up for me. What people also don't realize is exercise is one of the most powerful antidepressants there is. If you're feeling really down, I know it's hard to exercise, but if you can push past and start to you know, push yourself into that routine, it really does help with psychological symptoms because our mind and body are so much more connected than we think. So if you tend to your mental fitness, 
your your body will become more healthy. And if you tend to your physical fitness, your mind will become more healthy. And ideally, you're doing both. And you're realizing that both are who you are and are going to define the wellness that you experience. Yeah, I mean, I know whenever I'm stressed or overwhelmed, like, I would have like a big pimple in my forehead, or it's, it's, it's certainly the negative thoughts I've seen affect my physical. But I think most people don't see the reverse, they don't invert that and see positive thoughts could actually do have a positive effect in their bodies. 100%. And I think people discount some of the mental health advice out there because it feels a little hokey or a little woo. Like, for example, like a gratitude practice. I think a lot of people are like, oh, okay, I'm going to talk about what I'm grateful for. But they don't realize that when you focus on what you're grateful for, your brain releases the neurotransmitters and the chemicals that make you feel the joy of having that wonderful thing. And it actually can change the way you then proceed into the rest of the day because you've brought yourself into a beautiful present place instead of existing in a really scary future-based anxiety place. Like these things really do work. And I think people, if people gave them a little more credit, they might find that they see huge benefits. Yeah. I mean, speaking of uh, voodoo, I don't know how much you go into <laughs> the idea of, like Jung was a big believer in parapsychology, right? Uh, or like uh, extrasensory perception, things like, precognition or clairvoyance or telepathy. Uh, have you had experiences with clients that have had these like crazy experiences? So I'll give you one. Again, this is a guest of mine, Vision, who was talking about, this is a real story, real person. I've looked her up and he was talking about this woman named Lynn Twist. She's a real person. You can Google her. And she had this dream of this indigenous tribe and she had continuous dreams. And these are tribes that have these red streaks on their, fa- on their faces. And she had no idea what it could mean, who these people were, but they just kept coming into her dreams. And I guess her original thought was that this was a movie that she may have saw on and maybe it haunted her in her childhood. And when she was talking about it with her friend, her friend said, oh, you're talking about the Achuar tribe in Ecuador. And there's an actual tribe in Ecuador called Achuar, where, ha- where they have red streaks on their faces. So a couple of years later, she ends up going to Ecuador and she visits them. And they said, the moment that she actually went up and sees, sees them, they said, we've been expecting you. And it's this weird, crazy coincidence that they had. And on top of that, it turned out when she started talking to them and, and started living with them for a bit, they had a real issue on their hands. And the issue was that there was an Amazonian rainforest. It was being taken down. It was, it was going to be, uh, I, I guess, like mowed down. And it just so happened that she's a world-class philanthropist. And what happened was she organized a fundraiser. And among, among them was Vision and many of the top influencers, top wealthy individuals. And they ended up raising tons of money to help this tribe uh, maintain the Amazon Amazonian rainforest. I mean, how crazy is that, that they had this experience all through a dream? I don't know if that is clairvoyance. I don't know if that's telepathy, where you can enter into someone's dream and kind of will this into being. But to me, this is one of the craziest stories I've ever heard around this idea of like ESP. I love it. I mean, obviously, I'm not an expert on ESP. But what I can tell you that I know for sure is that our minds and our ability to connect with other people is a lot more powerful and a lot more complex 
then we give credit, <clears throat> then we get credit to, and then we understand. So in psychology, there's a term called projective identification. And projective identification is when we unconsciously get someone else to feel something that we don't want to face in ourselves in order to help them understand what we feel or in order to get rid of what we're feeling or in order to connect with that person better. So the classic example is when we're a baby and we, and we feel hunger, we don't know what hunger is. We just know that we don't feel good. And so we cry and we cry and our mother will know, oh, that's a hungry cry. Because the mom then just feels like, oh, oh, I don't like that feeling. I want to fix it. I'm going to feed the baby. The baby has now communicated exactly what it needs to the mother without any words or anything like that. But projective identification happens through our whole life. Think about if you're really angry at your partner and you don't want to face your anger, you might do little things that cause them to be angry. And then you can say, hey, look, you're angry. We should deal with this. When really it was your anger all along that was the thing that needed to be confronted. And we do this in all kinds of ways. And we often have no idea where we're doing it. And I think that we are communicating with each other all the time. And we're not conscious of it a lot of the time. And I think about the fact that for thousands of years, we heard sound, but we didn't know what sound was. And then all of a sudden, one day someone discovered, oh, there are sound waves that are traveling through the air. And we just happen to have a mechanism to pick up those sound waves. And then our brain translates them into something. And I think if I'm honest with myself, I believe that there are also mind waves. I also think that we're communicating what we feel and what we think and what we need in all kinds of various ways. And that if we were able to, we could perhaps tune into that frequency a little bit better, you know, just like twins talk about how they know when the other one is in trouble or I do think there are ways that we communicate with each other that we're not totally aware of so that I can completely get on board with I'm on board as well I mean I, I think the common one is you have a best friend or a partner that you can read their minds but I've had situations where I've just met this person for the first time and it felt like I was able to read their minds and like we were able to like without this person thinking, especially because she spoke a different language. Uh, I've mm. had experiences like that where even verbal communication was not even a possible thing. So the only thing we could do was through telepathy. And, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I do believe it for sure. Um, people are, people are scared of what they can't measure. And I don't think we've figured out exactly how to measure unconscious and silent communication, you know? And so it's, it's complicated, but it exists, obviously. I think everyone's had an experience that they can point to where they couldn't quite explain how it was that someone understood what they needed or what was going on or what they were thinking or whatever it might be. So we're on board the same train. I, yeah, I am. I mean, I think just because science hasn't caught up to understanding more of the mental waves and measuring this data to put out into the public, uh, I think there's enough experiences of people that have these crazy experiences. So yeah, I'm on board. I'm on board. Um, so I, I also want to be respectful of your time, Emily. So what can people do today uh, if we were to give an actionable step to take care, uh, to take action in terms of their emotional fitness, to take care of the mental health? What's a small thing that they can do just right after listening to this episode that can take them one step further? Well, firstly, I want to say that this was such a fun conversation I had fun. and I love that you were down to play all the games and try all the things. It's awesome. 
Um, I'm going to take this opportunity to shamelessly plug my work because I have fully devoted my life to this idea of emotional fitness. And I really believe in what we're doing. And I would love for people to come into the community. So I'm the co-founder and chief clinical officer of a company called COA, C-O-A. And we are essentially a mental fitness platform and community. And we will be opening mental fitness gyms across the country. So it's like Equinox for your mental health. And online, it's like Peloton, but for your mental health. So we have all kinds of amazing therapist-led emotional fitness classes on those seven traits I told you about, self-awareness, empathy, curiosity, mindfulness, communication, all kinds of amazing things. And so I hope what people will do to take a first step is come to one of our classes. Most of them are actually free right now during COVID because we really want to just support the community. And they're really fun and it's a way to connect with other people and to think about what's vulnerable and uncomfortable in your life and gain skills as a leader, as a parent, as a partner. So go to joincoa, J-O-I-N-C-O-A dot com and sign up for one of our classes. We also help anyone in California match with a therapist if they're ready to do that kind of work. And it's all really built on community. So that's what I would say. Come join. Let's like make let's make this mental re- mental health revolution happen. I think it's time for us all to get on board with the fact that who we are anywhere is who we are everywhere. So we better start working on ourselves for the benefit of everyone around us and everything that we're doing in the world. I love it. Do you guys have a um, uh, place in LA as well? We don't have a brick and mortar space in LA yet, but we do match people in LA to therapists and we do offer the classes to anyone in California and anyone all over the world. Okay. We can actually, how, how does it work? So if I was to go to SF, um, what would the cost be? What would actually be done? Is it like a therapy session with a therapist, but cheaper or what's the angle here? Yeah, so there's a few different ways that you can be caught by the system. If you live in California and you want an actual one-on-one therapist, then you go through our process where you talk to our lead matching specialist who is a clinical psychologist, and she helps you figure out who's the best therapist for you in our network. You get a free 20-minute consultation with them to make sure it feels like a good fit, and then you do therapy with them the same way you would anywhere else. It's confidential, it's one-on-one, it's private, it's ongoing. But then we also have these classes because we know therapy is expensive and not everyone wants to do work in that exact way, but the classes are led by therapists. So even though they're not technically therapy, it's a therapeutic experience and it's an opportunity to learn alongside peers who are also learning. And the classes are priced much lower. Like I said, they're mostly free right now, but they go up to like $30 a class. And for now it's all on Zoom and it's just a really lovely way to, one of the things we say is mental and emotional fitness is an individual journey but a communal pursuit. And by that, I mean, when you go to the gym, you have to lift your own weight, but it's a lot easier to do it when you're surrounded by other people who are also lifting weights and can spot you and can teach you and can support you. And that's what we're building at COA. We're building a mental fitness community where you're going to have to do your own work, but you're going to do it with others. You're not going to be alone and you're going to do it with guidance, the guidance of experts who've spent their whole lives studying the human condition. So we've got classes, we've got therapy, and we've got community. And we're pretty excited to welcome people in and and start to shift the relationship society has in general to working on their mental health and emotional fitness. Very cool. Yeah, I'll definitely check it out next time in uh, California. I'll link all those guys below as well. Thanks you guys for joining. Thank you, Dr. Emily, for coming. Bye, everybody. It's been such a pleasure. I had a blast. I had a blast as well. All right, guys. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.
Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.